Raven Chacon, Terrence Blanchard, Jesse Montgomery, and Black Violin. These are just a few of the artists featured in Noteworthy Stories, a new series from WDAV Classical Radio that broadens our view of classical music by shining a light on the lives and music of artists of color, women, and others from historically underrepresented groups. I'm Loki Karuna, host of Noteworthy, inviting you to check out who is Noteworthy this week and to catch up on past episodes at noteworthyclassical.org. Hello everyone, I'm Loki Karuna and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for joining me here once again. Huge shout out and thanks to all of the returning listeners. It's a pleasure and an honor to hang out with y'all this way each week. For the new folks here, Triloquy is a weekly podcast built to decolonize classical music. Each week I bring in subject matter and stories from the so-called classical field and beyond to unpack a little bit through as much of a decolonized lens as I can offer. I also feature interviews with some folks in the field doing this work in their own unique way, following each week the Triloquy, where I offer thoughts and opinions on something that I think deserves an unapologetically true and real approach. It gets me in trouble sometimes, but that's okay. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to check out past opuses and to donate, go over to the website. That's T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. I'm excited and honored to share with you my recent conversation with Michael Redman this week. He's someone who's dedicated himself to promoting orchestral and chamber music by his late father, Ed. Redmond. Uh, if you're listening to this, you probably already know names like William Grant Still and Florence Price. Uh, well, Ed Redmond is another one of the many Black composers whose legacies uh, deserve to be kept alive. More on him shortly. Looking forward to sharing that with y'all. Uh, we're also going to go back over to social media <laughs> in this week's Triloquy so that I can add on to the dialogue that's uh, been surrounding Jamie Foxx this week. If you don't know, you will know. So that's coming up later on. But for right now, there's a story over at the violin channel that I'd like to make sure you know about. The headline is Soprano Anna Trebko sues the Metropolitan Opera. I'll read a little of it here. It says Soprano Anna Trebko, age 51, has sued the Metropolitan Opera for at least $360,000 over alleged discrimination, defamation, and contract breaches. Uh, despite publicly opposing the Russian-Ukraine war, Natrebko was barred from performing at the Met in March of 2022 as she could not give a clear withdrawal of support from Russian President Vladimir Putin, whom she had endorsed in the years before the invasion. Uh, according to the Met's general manager Peter Gelb, the company would, quote, no longer engage with artists or institutions that support Putin or are supported by him, not until the invasion or killing has stopped, order has been restored, and restitutions have been made. More can be heard from Gelb in a video on the Met's Facebook page. So uh, prior to this, Natrepko was a popular artist at the Met, um, world-renowned, you know, was, was doing everything that she did, not only there and around the world. So People are uh, up in arms. <laughs> she is, anyway. I wanted to highlight this story um, because it reminds me of something that I was talking about a few weeks ago, this idea that new precedents um, have been made for discrimination lawsuits, partly in response to what um, arts organizations see as equitable action. We had the uh, Supreme Court striking down um, affirmative action. You know, it's, it's hard for me not to think about these two things, uh, those two things anyway, in a, in a similar boat. Uh, for those of you who aren't new to this show, you know that Anna comes up every now and again, especially when she decides to put on her blackface makeup for <laughs> those opera roles. Um, I think it's very interesting and very telling that the Met hadn't barred her for those reasons. The interviews are out there. The media is out there where uh, she's saying she doesn't see anything wrong with it. Anti-blackness isn't cancelable <laughs> as far as the Met is concerned, but other political ideas and ideals can get you barred from that organization. I think that's interesting. I also want to highlight uh, something else that Peter Gelb said, you know, he said she can come back, um, you know, if she wants to denounce Putin and all that stuff, not until after the invasion, after the killing has stopped. 
um, and restitutions have been made. So, it, it, you know, I'm just highlighting the fact that we can uh, order and hope for restitutions, reparations, even when it comes to, you know, certain non-black people. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm chasing the rabbit off the trail here. I'm, I'm not even supposed to be <laughs> talking about that. Okay. I want to make it clear, first of all, before I get into this, that I don't disagree with the Mets' decision. There's no justification for lives lost in that war, especially when you think about lives of children that have been impacted, families uh, split up, um, homes and property destroyed. So not hiring someone who won't clearly state opposition to that sort of violence is justifiable in my book. I just think it's important to note where organizations like the Met will draw that line and where they won't draw that line when it comes to decisions like those. That's the only reason I'm bringing up the blackface and any of that. Okay, now, if I can put her unapologetic use of blackface to the side for just a moment, I think I can try to put myself in her shoes and to understand where she might be coming from. Later down in the article, it says that Anna um, had lost work in Russia as well because she wouldn't make a direct statement of support for Putin. So uh, she's getting it from both sides here. Uh, so it reminds me of when, you know, when black artists and public figures um, in general are asked to denounce others or even you know folks in positions like mine are asked to denounce some black leaders uh, because of things that they have said in the past that are problematic some that aren't I'm not going to name anyone but imagine a black person who has said some really really uh, bad things um, while also being a great leader in the community that's what I'm talking about not even gonna uh, name drop I think it's difficult because I think two things can be can be true at one time. There are people who do horrible things that should be denounced. There's no question about that. And where a person will or won't align themselves politically doesn't have to much do with their onstage performances, right? Now, please hear me when I say this. I'm not siding with anyone when it comes to this issue, neither the Met nor Ms. Natrepko, you know, are, are folks I'm rooting for. And, and this in this situation anyway. Honestly, if it were up to me, again, she wouldn't be on any stage until she apologized to the world for her blatant use of blackface. But with all that said, I can't help but to wonder what road we're headed down as an industry with this being an example, even an, an example where we can you know, find that sort of barring justifiable for one reason or another. Uh, let's say an arts organization needs me to pledge my allegiance to, I don't know, Joe Biden for some reason. I'm not going to be a part of that organization, okay? That, that's just how it is. Let's say an arts institution needs me to publicly denounce someone like, um, I don't know, a, a rap. let's say a rapper whose name <laughs> rhymes with Shmamye Best <laughs> based on some of his past statements. I think there would be a way for me to denounce the statements and actions without necessarily burying the man. And at the same time, I'll simply make sure that the organization is being consistent um, in those demands. Don't tell me to uh, shit on person A when we're platforming, platforming Debussy the racist, talking about Gollywog's cakewalk, when we're platforming Copeland the misogynist, George Friedrich Handel the slave trade investor. And I'm not trying to compare apples to, to oranges, uh, but my point is, you know, she did something she said something, she didn't say something, and she had to deal with the consequences. You know, I, I have to come to the table when it comes to this uh, this whole issue, um, understanding that my personal values have often come into conflict with many of the people and many of the organizations that I've worked with. When American public media let me go for, uh, back in 2020 for standing up in my values, a lot of people were expecting me to sue. I was even given advice in that direction by some of their in-house legal counsel. So the opportunity was definitely there, but I don't believe that sort of thing, you know, is very useful at the, at the end of the day. I mean, you know, who, who doesn't want a, a few hundred thousand dollars, but I mean, the headache and the energy that goes into that, something more positive can be done. In my opinion, historically marginalized people within so-called classical music haven't existed peacefully for a long time. Not for the most part. We are always, we are always weighing our need to make a dollar against how far away from our personal beliefs we're willing to go. This is my truth. I imagine that's many of your truths as well. Um, or maybe you're someone who's never experienced pushback or consequences for choosing your values when it comes to work and employment. I think Anna Netrebko is probably one of those people because as soon as she got a little friction from an arts institution, she's ready to involve a judge and go to court. Now, again, 
I have no dog in this race. If she wins the suit, the Mets got to pay and they have it to pay. So good for her. If she loses the suit, our institutions may use this as a tool to feel more empowered to hire who they want, not only based on the artistry, but social variables as well. Either way, I have to continue my work and my journey. But all in all, I hope each of you will think about what you do if you were asked to denounce someone you didn't want to denounce for the sake of your job or for the sake of an opportunity. Let me repeat myself for a third time. I'm not disagreeing with the Met, but let's just flip the shoe. Let's use our imaginations and pretend that we were in her shoes and we were actually standing up for someone who we thought was right. Not saying that she thought Putin was right. I'm just saying, let's use our imaginations. I think it's something worth thinking about. It's a situation that I believe more and more of us are going to get to experience as things move forward with the way, you know, large swaths of the country are moving. I've already had my turn. And for many of you, I don't know, maybe your turn is coming up. Just some (laughs) food for thought there. But I think that's enough there. You can go uh, check out that article. It's over at Violin Channel. But uh, for right now, we're going to go ahead and get into my dialogue with Michael Redman. So again, Michael is the son of Ed Redman, who was a black composer of the 20th century, who you've probably never heard of. Not only uh, did Ed Redman celebrate performances of his works uh, during his day, there are recordings of his orchestral and chamber music that people need to have on their radars as you know, we all think about how we can program and promote uh, more equitably, always learning, always growing. Uh, so his son, Michael, isn't a musician, but he is someone who believes in the importance of black history and black legacy. So he's dedicated his life uh, to raising awareness around his father's music. Uh, so Michael and I uh, talk about his father, the status of so-called classical music as, as it exists in the United States and uh, lots more. Uh, so to get us into this chat, I'm going to share an excerpt from a work by Ed Redman called Transition in Black. This movement is called Africa. Uh, the performance features the Budapest Scoring Orchestra. Black man got to go all the way to Central and Eastern Europe to get a recording. Mm, but, <laughs> but we're grateful for anyway, aren't we? So hope you enjoy this bit of music by the late Ed Redmond and hope you enjoy my dialogue with his son, Michael. business. I uh, spent the last 22, 23 years uh, between Los Angeles and Atlanta, Georgia, which I now reside in, doing limousines. And uh, basically, about seven years ago, I started to take up, uh, I had this catalog of uh, my dad's music. And uh, a lot of it had been written and composed and never had been recorded. So uh, I decided to just uh, do something with it because I said it would be a shame to uh, not uh, do anything with it. Uh, He had spent his whole life basically writing, composing, working in the music industry. Spent 12 years in the service prior to moving to L.A. and uh, working with a who's who in the music industry. Was there a learning curve for you to engage this music as a publisher and as a publicist? Uh, not so much a learning curve. I mean, I grew up as a son of a musician. I saw where my dad, uh, you know, was a consummate musician, a very serious musician. And uh, a lot of his work was done in the background hmm. for major artists and stuff. And uh, he uh, composed a lot of works uh, from orchestral to having his own group, Modern String Ensemble, which to me was more or less this version of a chamber uh, chamber group, chamber music. 
And uh, just wanted to uh, see it come to fruition after him putting, you know, some 40 years between the military and working uh, in the music industry in Los Angeles. And we're going to talk a little bit later uh, in this conversation about uh, some of his music, uh, specifically Transition in Black and and other works. But just generally speaking, I wonder um, why, in your opinion, orchestral music is an important medium, especially for for black folks. We've made, you know, some progress with having more black people on the stage and even in the audience. But your father was in this work far before we were talking about DEI and the other things that we engage today. Very much so. Uh, And it actually goes back to my grandfather, who was an accomplished violinist. And basically, basically due to racism, you know, a lot of his ambitions were cut short because I don't think the, uh, what, the New York Philharmonic, I believe it was Stanford Allen, Mm -hmm. his name, uh, you know, was in, uh, yeah, uh, 1963. You know, so uh, we don't realize that because of the era, what they had to go through. We think things are tough on us now, but I can just imagine what they had to go through during periods of segregation and stuff like that. So it uh, it's basically, like I said, my grandfather sort of planted the seed and uh, my dad. I never really studied music. I, I did take some music lessons, but I was always involved with athletics and sports. And then when I got older, I uh, became more involved helping my father in non-business ways, setting up uh, music stands at the studio, arranging studio time, things like that. So I found that there's a lot of ways to be involved with music business and not not be a musician. So I just took it on myself myself to basically uh, take his works and uh, record them, uh, the piece Transition in Black. He wrote that in 1961, and it got performed uh, by the L.A. Philharmonic. Three-fourths of it got performed by the L.A. Philharmonic. They wouldn't do the slavery movement, but uh, Africa, the Civil War, and the transition, they did do that. And then recently, with uh, the Symphonic Jazz Orchestra, Mitch Glickman, they did the Africa movement, and then they also did a song called Theme Eternal that my dad wrote off an album that... uh, he produced, played on, composed, arranged, conducted, <laughs> and financed back in 1966. So, well, one thing I'll point out, at least at the time of uh, our having this dialogue, you know, uh, Sanford Allen was the first back in the 60s, and there's still only one tenured musician in the New York Philharmonic. So, as as much as uh, as much progress as has been made, there's still so 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 far to go. Um, but you mentioned that the L.A. Phil uh, wouldn't play the slavery movement of Transitions in Black. Has has that movement been performed or recorded yet? It's been recorded uh, due to my uh, taking it and wanting to hear the entirety of the uh, Sweet Orchestral uh, uh, music. Uh, when I recorded it with the Budapest Scoring Orchestra, it took me, he wrote it in a 61 and I recorded it with the Budapest Scoring Orchestra in 2021, February of 2021, sort of uh, as a tribute to Black History Month, which really should be 365 days a year. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and also, uh, it was like 60 year anniversary of him writing the piece. And like I said, it's been performed once. They excluded the... Uh, slavery movement. I wanted to hear it in its entirety. So I had the Budapest Point Orchestra uh, record and videotape it. From your perspective, what do you think fuels uh, or fueled the aversion to that movement specifically? Obviously, the whole work is Black and about the Black experience, but do you think there was just something about shining a light on the history of slavery that the musicians were uncomfortable with? Or what do you think it was? I don't really know, but my, my take is they may have had to do something with a guilt complex mm. that they didn't want to be confronted with uh, dealing with the reality of American history, you know, and it's true. That was, that was my take on it because uh, I also know that uh, Gerald Wilson had a piece performed 
by the LA Philharmonic. And this is at the time that Zubin Mehta was the conductor. Mm -hmm. And he wrote it as a tribute to Malcolm X. But uh, when it actually came out, it was uh, entitled uh, Debut 05-2172. And they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't go with the title, you know, Tribute to Malcolm X. So uh, <laughs> it seems to be the history of the American way to try to change the narrative of what uh, black people are about many times. And uh, because we don't control the media, you know, we get uh, less than what we deserve in terms of our true avenues of expression and how we feel things should be. That was, that's my take on it. So you uh, had to go outside of the United States to get that movement in particular recorded. Were you in on the conversations? How, how did you get connected with the, the Budapest uh, Philharmonic? Was it the Budapest Philharmonic, you said? Budapest Scoring uh, Orchestra is an uh, entity that does a lot of uh, film tracks, uh, movie, movie scores and stuff like that. And one of the reasons why a lot of people go over there is because of the cost. Because I was trying to get it. I've been trying to get it recorded here for years. I've reached out to almost every black organization and orchestra that I know of. And because of the cost and the fact that there are no standing black orchestras, most of the orchestra, black orchestras that I know of come together for like a week, to do a mm -hmm. festival or whatever, but they're not together every day, all year round. Uh, due to the cost factor and the fact that there were no standing black orchestras, I had to take it overseas. So for the people who aren't on the inside of these negotiations and, and conversations, what keeps uh, your father's music off the stage? I guess we can talk specifically about the black orchestras. There's the you know Gateways Music Festival, Color of Music, uh, Sphinx is uh, more diverse than just black, but I'll, I'll put them in there. Is it uh, cost w connected to rights to the music or even for these orchestras that uh, come together for short periods of, of time? What, what keeps the works from being performed? Uh, I think it's two reasons. One, there's such an abundance of black content out there that you're competing against, you know, the Florence prices, Margaret bonds, people like that. And then two, if it doesn't have name re recognition, they're always looking at it from, okay, what's going to sell, what's going to bring people, attract people, what's going to put butts in the seats. Mm -hmm. So I think it's twofold basically. And, uh, you know, to me, I would probably even add a third that uh, it's very competitive that, you know, a lot of conductors and composers are trying to get their works out there, but they're trying to get their own works out there. They don't want to do anybody else's work. Hmm. That's what I believe. You know, it seems to be a competitive, almost like an intimidation kind of thing to me, but I'm uh, not discouraged. I believe that my father was a great composer, like I said, a very serious and consummate musician. And I want to share his uh, masterpieces and works with the world. And if I have to take it uh, international, global, then so be it. As a matter of fact, I think it has a lot of relevance, you know, when you talk about, you know, the Caribbean and Africa and mm -hmm. different uh, other jurisdictions that are Black people and that will be able to, be able to relate to the content of uh, Transition Black, which is really an ethnology of the Black experience. So, uh, cost has a lot to do with it, uh, and timing. I mean, I, I see a greater sensitivity since the George Floyd situation and uh, pandemic to try to play and expose black composers, but there's such an abundance of works and, uh, a lot of them, you know, sit on a shelf somewhere in somebody's garage somewhere. I've just been fortunate that I've been able to take my dad's works and improve them, uh, you know, bring them up to state-of-the-art uh, standards where I have scores and parts. Uh, and I had the financing where I could uh, uh, record and videotape Transition Black in particular. 
Yeah, and I want you to take us through transitions in black. But before we do that, just I guess one more historical question. You know, you mentioned uh, the competition with everyone talking about Florence Price, especially, but also William Grant Still. We have you know Samuel Coleridge Taylor, all all, all, all sorts of historical black composers. Was your father George Walker? George Walker, yeah, of course. Was your father in contact or collaboration with with any of these folks, to your knowledge? Well, no, he wasn't uh, in contact with them, to my knowledge, but we did draw up uh, two blocks from the William Grant Steel Performing Arts Center (laughs) on Westview Street. So I think he was influenced. And then my dad had a very extensive training and background, both in jazz and in classical. And like I said, a lot of that had to do with my grandfather, who was an accomplished musician as well, violinist. And, uh, you know, I mean, he, he studied white uh, composers, George Gershwin, you know, all the conductors, Leonard Bernstein, Gunther Schuller, you know, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, and then all the black uh, uh, jazz artists, Count Basies, and uh, different people to come up. To, uh, uh, all, all the major jazz cats, Miles Davis and Charlie Parker and stuff like that. So, you know, Gunther Schuller played... Uh, French horn with Miles Davis. And uh, he was very open. Matter of fact, I know he uh, recorded some pieces on uh, Charles Mingus, who's also a big composer. You know, a lot of people don't even know about mm-hmm. in terms of popular section, know about Charles Mingus. And uh, other people like uh, Charles Stepney, I don't know if you're familiar with Charles Stepney, but he wrote a classical jazz uh, symphony that. Uh, got performed by the Minneapolis uh, Symphony, but my knowledge has never been recorded. I'd like to, you know, wish I had the money to just record a lot of the stuff that is out there that's never been recorded. That would be a great series to do, you know, for someone, so. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're shining a light on how much we still have to learn in light of everything that we have learned in, in uh, recent years and decades. Uh, so so let's talk a little bit about transitions in Black. Can you take us uh, through this piece movement by movement and sort of uh, speak to why this is a significant work, especially uh, to the Black experience and to Black people? Well, uh, like I said, it was written in 1961. It's an ethnology of the Black experience dealing with Africa, which is where we emanated from. I just found out recently that Africa was not the true name of that region. Al-Kabalan was the indigenous name of Africa, but it had been changed to Africa. So when you talk about learning something new, I'm I'm still learning every day. (laughs) But uh, Africa, the civil uh, slavery, the civil war, and then the transition, and that doesn't, you know, uh, take into account the Jim Crow era and all the stuff that uh, we had to deal with during that time in terms of the KKK and the intimidation, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma being burned out. And, you know, there were many, many occasions where, you know, we just got to- totally destroyed in terms of our uh, livelihood, our financial, you know. Uh, progress and everything like that, where we had to start over again. And uh, still, you know, like you said, the recent things with affirmative action and yeah, and I mean, just everything that's going on it seems to be digressing more than it is progressing. Me, hmm. Hmm. there's so yeah. many people these days who are highlighting that we need black joy in our creativity and in what we create musically uh, and and otherwise at the same time you know personally i really think it's so important to not allow black joy to replace black history because there are things that we just need to remember things that we need to never forget what's your take on especially in light of the work you're doing with your father's music what's your take on balancing music uh, that highlights black joy versus music that helps us remember things like slavery, like Greenwood, all the things that you just named? Well, my, my take is basically it's our reality. Just mm-hmm. like slavery is a part of American history, it definitely should be uh, remembered as uh, a part of black history. You know, I, in my estimation, you would never hear the Jewish community speak about 
not involving the Holocaust in terms of their history hmm. and not to try to duplicate or uh, uh, copy someone. I mean, it's a part of our history, like with the Negro spirituals that came out of, uh, you know, slavery and, and working on the chain gang and stuff like that. It's part of our reality. So we shouldn't be ashamed of it. I believe that we should learn from it. And like I said, for me, black history is 365 days a year. Black history is world history. So many of the inventions that have happened in America, blacks never got credit for it. I mean, they may have been slaves and they invented, invented it, but we were considered chattel property. And, you know, the white uh, masters got credit for those intellectual properties and stuff. So that's what I realized about my dad's situation. I don't just have songs. I have a catalog of intellectual properties, just like trademarks or, or patents or whatever. And that's very valuable because if I do something with it, I can turn, uh, pass that on to my kids, my grandkids, my great grandkids and stuff like that. So it has that uh, generational wealth, you know, Rothschild mentality of wanting to do, you know, for my family. And I want to share it. Personally, because not only my family, but because it is an ethnology, the black experience, and then even with the uh, fact that, you know, so many uh, blacks make up part of the world population, it just needs to be shared. And they, they need to know the truth. I mean, there's rel relative truth and then there's absolute truth. So uh, I'm just trying to do what I can to move forward. And I've made a lot of progress. Not financially, because I put money into it and uh, I hope to recoup it and, you know, uh, make money from it. But that's not my primary goal or objective in terms of doing this. I need to get it out there. I mean, like I said, it recently got played by the uh, Symphonic Jazz Orchestra. And uh, you asked about why some people weren't receptive to it. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad basically took uh jazz blues you know other types of music and used the orchestral or symphonic platform to expose his music there was a recent study done by uh, uh martin norgard at uh georgia state university he did some studies and it was on musical improvisation which is very much a part of jazz and they've done studies to say that students that study improvisation are much more advanced than people who just, students who just take up regular music lessons. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I've just come across that information recently. So, you know, when most people start studying music, they start studying classical music. Well, even in the popular music field, you have people like the Funk Brothers who were band from Motown. All of those guys were jazz uh, cats. It's almost like if you can play jazz, you can play everything. Sure. But I don't, I don't know that if you play classical music that you can play everything. Matter of fact, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of classical uh, performers are seen to be intimidated or, or skeptical or hesitant when, when it comes to play jazz. Now, there's been a lot of progress with people like Christian House who has the Creative Strength podcast, who, you know, seems to be opening things up a lot in terms of that. But uh, uh, jazz, uh, blues, oh, that's our roots music. Uh, basically, Dvorak, uh, when he came in the late 1800, 1892 or something, mm -hmm. he yeah, came, he said, yeah, he said the uh, go to the indigenous people, the Indian, uh, and, and Afro-Americans and America will find its music. I don't feel like that's ever really, really been done. I mean, to, in a limited sense, maybe it has been done, but not in, 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 in totality, complete, completeness. It's like when you speak of classical music, you're almost speaking of, you know, people from Europe. Mm -hmm. Not an inclusive situation. So like you said, all this diversity, equity, inclusion. <laughs> It seems like a lot of grandstanding to me. Uh, like I said, I've been involved with this for some time and uh, I've reached out to, you know, some major orchestras and, you know, they'll play the, uh, the theme of the Black Panther 
But, you know, when I, when I come to them, you know, want them to play Transition Black, even though it's been performed by the LA Philharmonic and has credit of Zubinata performing it, they don't, uh, they don't seem too uh, receptive. But things do change. And I think through persistence and determination and stick to that uh, all I can do is get it out there and uh, hopefully it'll take its own course. We can spend all day talking about, you know, funding and uh, how that connects to opportunities and, you know, recording, right? All of these things that can keep a piece of music off the stage. With that being said and understood, in your opinion, how much of this simply points back to racism? I mean, we you, you've talked about how certain jazz aesthetics have been kept out of, of certain spaces, you know, so that 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 decision is made before a person is even standing on stage. Are we really just, uh, is it appropriate, I'll, I guess I'll ask, to just boil this down to a continued um, aspect of systemic racism, this music and these aesthetics not making it uh, to the spaces that you're working to, to get them on? Well, I believe so. Most of the uh, uh, symphony orchestras around the country are funded by tax dollars. Okay. They say the uh, average population of the African American community is 12%. Why is it that we only have less than 2%, you know, in uh, symphony orchestras? Mm -hmm. Our tax dollars are being uh, allocated for that. So I think it does have to do with whites, systemic racism. And uh, it's almost like, I believe when uh, blacks get involved with stuff, we're so dominant that they feel like we're going to take everything over. <laughs> <laughs> so like in sports and stuff like that, but you know, there's a lot of athletes and actors and stuff. When you spoke about the funding, you know, we don't have to go outside of our community to uh, get these projects funded. There's enough wealthy black people, billionaires and billionaires uh, who can fund these projects as well. I'm going to funding. I've been turned down three times for grants. Uh, you know, but I'm still going to go after more grants and uh, hopefully I'll, you know, get one or more in the future. But, uh, you know, everything's a learning process. Every time I go through the process and get denied, it just fires me up that much more when I want to continue to uh, uh, go. And then a lot of it has to do with uh, who's going to be the financial, financial or fiscal uh, recipient of those funds because they don't want to give it to somebody who may, who they believe may be out of business next year or the year to come. They want to give it to like an educational institution or very well-known nonprofit. So I'm not a nonprofit. I have to align myself with a nonprofit. And that's been a challenge for me. Not so much of aligning myself with a nonprofit, but aligning myself with one that they feel would qualify to be the fiscal recipient of the funds and stuff. So yeah, I wanna, it's been a quite a learning experience for me. I want to highlight something that you you pointed out there. You talk about how black people largely we we have money. And and I think that we we see that in uh, certainly other aspects of the music industry when we look at athletics, even the successes black people have had in business and, and the corporate sector. So if the black money exists what is the disconnect between those funding structures and black classical music? We just aren't largely anyway, we just aren't involved in classical spaces. What are your ideas on more broadly making those connections between everyday black folks and black classical music? I believe uh, it, it's, it's a challenge, but I believe that it can be done. Uh, we have to be about uh, sponsoring and financing our own projects, even keeping uh, uh, money in the black community, recycling black dollars. You know, uh, we are not poor when we look at our situation collectively, but we are very disenfranchised <laughs> in terms of looking at it collectively in terms of what we can do and stuff. So uh, even integration, you know, has had some impact on that because when there was segregation. You had no choice but to stay in your community. But now things get diluted. And even the programs, when there uh, were affirmative action programs and stuff like that, 
black people were the last people to uh, benefit from those, you know, uh, white people, uh, uh, Mexicans, uh, women, you know, uh, all kinds of people benefited. And we were last on the uh, totem poles. I worked, you know, in redevelopment for many years and I was a part and they would have uh, quotas. Oh, you know, 25% quota of blacks. And, uh, you know, when we would go through the project, everybody else would be <laughs> included. And we'd have to basically call them on the carpet and hold their feet, you know, to the wire in terms of getting black summer projects. So it's just, it's very challenging, very frustrating, uh, but we can do better. And I would hope that more wealthy blacks would look at classical music and blacks who are in classical music who need to get funding and stuff like that. Because if we don't take care of our own, who's going to take care of us, basically? So. And I know so much of your way of thinking about these things are rooted in just your lived experience. But I wonder how much of this uh, you attribute to your father. What did, you know, we we know, thanks to you, many of us know what uh, how, how your father realized these conversations through music, but what did the dinner table or living room conversations look like when it came to race, Black achievement, and all those sorts of things? Well, uh, my dad, I look at it, uh, I look at him sort of like the uh, uh, musical Alex Haley, <laughs> especially as it relates to transition Black. You know, uh, saying we know thyself. So, I mean, I think he wrote the, this piece, you know, as a tribute to, you know, racism that him and grandfather went through and all blacks go through. And uh, he knew at the time that he didn't have any idea how it was going to be played or whether it was going to be performed or anything. Mm -hmm. He just wrote it because he wanted to do it. I mean, like I said, money wasn't the, the major objective. He knew he was skilled. He didn't have an orchestra to test things and say, well, this needs to be changed. That needs to be changed. All of this came from his head and from his training of being in the service. Uh, he studied at uh, uh, Berkeley School of Music uh, in Boston. And at the time he was going, they were, they were correspondence courses. They didn't have a campus until the 60s. And he was, uh, we were in L.A. by that time. But he also went to uh, NYU and took uh, a program to study the cylinder system of musical composition and arranging. And, uh, I mean, with his background and training, uh, I remember when we moved to L.A., he tried to further his education at USC. He had a GI Bill, but they turned him down. So... Uh, people say, well, how could he, he turned down, he had a GI Bill. I said, people don't realize in the late 50s, you could not live in Baldwin Hills if you were Black, Jewish, or Hispanic. They wow. had restricted covenants, you know, in the 50s in Los Angeles. So even though that wasn't the South, people don't realize how we've been impacted. Matter of fact, I hear they're doing a study now in California about paying reparations yep. to people in California, even though, you know, when you think of slavery and think of, you know, some of the trauma that we've gone through, you think more of the South, but they're actually doing a study about reparations for blacks in California. As a matter of fact, they had a thing recently where uh, a family who had owned some property that had been taken away, I think it was in Redondo Beach or Hermosa Beach, they got the property, deeded uh, uh, back to them because of, you know, uh, uh, the things that happened. So I see progress. I'm encouraged by that. But there's so, so, so much more that needs to be done. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of study of uh, what you're doing. And I'm really encouraged and inspired by uh, by you and, you know, the things of decolonizing classical music because it has not been inclusive. Like I said, when they talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I mean, I feel like my dad, when he music that he was offering a solution to some of the things that they keep talking about over and over again. So why wouldn't they be receptive to playing this music? Mm -hmm. You know, I have all the scores, I have all the parts, you know, I'm trying to get the music played and I'm also trying to get 
paid for the music. <laughs> sure. It's a two-part situation, but uh, like I said, you hear William Grant Stills, from Margaret Bonds, uh, Florence Prices, like said, George Walker. I mean, there's so many. You know, one person they don't talk about is Margaret Harris. Sure. She was on a program that uh, Zubin did uh, for my dad's music performance. She was a conductor. She died early. I think she was 56, but she she was the first black woman that conducted about 14 of the major orchestras in America. I never hear her name. Margaret Harris out of Chicago went to uh, when she was very young, went to uh, Curtis Institute of Music. Uh, then she uh, went to uh, Juilliard, got her uh, undergraduate degree and, and, and her graduate degree in music. And, uh, you know, there's so many people that you never hear about that need to be here. Her, you know, it's like the hidden figures. There's, you know, a list a mile long, and I mean, really longer than that in terms of being indefinite that uh, if they really wanted to... Uh, uncover the works and expose this music that, that I believe should be exposed because it's great music. And uh, I just think that, uh, you know, like I said, what you're doing, I'm encouraged by. I'd like to see a lot more people, you know, try to really not only talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, but really be about uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, because a lot of lip service, like I said, our tax dollars go to support all the major uh, symphonies. So why is it less than 2% Blacks when there's 12%? Then you have cities like Chicago, uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Atlanta, Detroit, Memphis. Detroit, you know, that are like 50% or more <laughs> African-American population. So it just makes no sense from a math, statistical, equity point of view. And until we, you know, uh, wake up and uh, start petitioning, you know, our politicians, uh, you know, sometimes I don't really advocate violence or anything like that. But, I mean, start protesting and letting them know that we know that we're being shackled. Nothing's going to change because as long as we go along with the status quo, the status quo will continue to stay the same, in my estimation. How much blame do you put on uh, orchestral musicians for just going along with the status quo? We've often seen when an orchestra uh, management is proposing a, let's say, a 15 percent tax or not tax cut, but pay cut or they're changing around the benefits, that sort of thing. We see all these news stories about uh, mu musicians protesting or, or going on strike. Uh, to my knowledge, we haven't seen that when it comes to to programming. Should we be pressuring orchestral musicians to do what they can do to shine more light on folks like Ed Redmond and uh, Margaret Harris, all these people whose names we don't say at all? I think so. Uh, but again, that's a very slippery slope because, again, people's livelihoods are always at stake when they protest or they go against the grain. So that's really a very personal decision. I would like to think that, okay, you stand for what's right. But again, some people, you know, cave to the pressure of the status quo and say, well, I need to make this money. I need to feed my family, which is very, very true. And I don't uh, condemn anybody for you know, being uh, about taking care of the family and the need to make money. I mean, like I said, it's always a, very delicate balance that we should be trying to strike. And uh, I don't have all the answers. Like I said, I have a lot of experiences that I can speak from in terms of, you know, my own journey. And I try to enjoy the journey. And I look at it not only from an entertainment standpoint, but I look at it from an educational standpoint as well. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. You know, my father was an educator, uh, first and foremost, although he didn't do it in a formal sense, like working college or anything, but he gave clinics around the country, uh, North Carolina, and I've been contacted several times by people who have been doing their dissertations for their PhD, and my dad's name comes up, and, you know, he wrote an article called Jazz Strings in the World of Music that got published in 1971 by the uh, American uh, 
uh, string, no, Amer yeah, American String Teacher Association, and they've run that again recently. And that article, which talks about, you know, jazz, improvisation, you know, it not only tells me that it's musically sound, but educationally and scientifically sound as well, especially with these studies that I've come across recently that uh, Martin Norgood has done regarding, uh, you know, uh, musical improvisation where they take math, they take computer, they take neuroscience, they take physics, and, you know, they've come up with a situation where people study musical improvisation mm -hmm. much more advanced than people who just study regular music. So, uh, things are changing. I mean, they're slow, but, you know, uh, like I said, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm into, into it. I mean, uh, what I'm doing. I mean, I want to share it with the world. I want to make this world a better place to be, you know, educationally from a truth, peace, and justice standpoint. And uh, we still have a long way to go. Like I said, it seems like we're digressing more than we are progressing in many respects. But uh, sometimes things have to, you know, I guess uh, fall apart or, you know, get totally messed up before, you know, they get better. So, yeah, I had, a, I had a teacher who used to say you have to let a house burn down before you exactly. rebuild. <laughs> exactly. You know, and then the whole thing when the house is burning down, it's the thing where people in the house, it's not that they're worried about hey, who's in charge and stuff like that. Where, you know, in terms of egos and stuff, if you say get out and the house is on fire, you're going to get out the house. <laughs> you don't care who's in charge. It may be a little kid and say, hey, go this way. You're the adult, but you're going to go this way to get out that house and try to survive. So I think, like I said, the competitive nature sometimes of blacks, you know, they talk about the crab basket mentality and all that. So, you know, we should be about looking how we can uh, build each other up. I think work more collaborative, collaborative, collaboratively on projects to uh, further our situation as a whole. I mean, that takes compromising sometimes on an individual perspective, but you can look at the bigger picture as always the macro and the micro. So yep. depending on where you're focusing on, we a lot of times are so concerned about surviving and you know how we're gonna pay the bills, how we're gonna put food on the table the next day that our attention span or focus not on medium and long term uh progress, it's on you know individual and immediate progress. So and speaking of that micro and macro sort of relationship, none of us live for forever. I wonder if on that macro level, if you uh, set yourself up for your uh, for someone else to continue to fight for your your father's legacy, has has one of your kids or, or grandkids taken up the taken up the responsibility as well? Uh, not at this time. I mean, <laughs> we talk. I talk about it. And again, they have their own families. And I wanted to be a situation much like myself, you know, when I was young and coming up, it wasn't until like in the high school, college, that I really could understand what my dad was doing and what he was about. So it took me a while. And then I was in, I was married at the time, had a family. So it wasn't like I could really take a lot of the money that I needed for my family to put into the project. So again, back to that balancing situation. But I talk with my kids. Uh, I play the music for them. Uh, and their reaction is probably a lot like mine when I was coming up. I wanted to hear Motown. I didn't, you know, <laughs> I wanted to shake my tail for, you know, kind of thing. So it's a maturing process. And uh, but once the light went off, you know, then I could see, like I said, that these weren't just songs. These were intellectual properties, very valuable. Uh, we talk about even trade and, you know, countries, uh, you know, trying to come over here and steal our intellectual properties, you know. Sure. Uh, you understand the value that you have. And that's what I'm saying. I've spent over 40 years in the service and working in L.A. before he passed. And he died a very young man at 56. So I just turned 69 last week. So I'm just glad to still be be here every day above ground it's a great day <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're glad that you're still here <laughs> mm -hmm. 
how can people learn more uh, about Ed Redmond or listen to his music? Well, uh, go to the website, www.edredmondmusic.com. And that's, uh, it's, it's E-D-R-E-D-M-O-N-D music.com. That M-A-N, a lot of people, when you say Redmond, they think it's Red Man, mm-hmm. which probably one time it may have been, but, you know, <laughs> I have uh, a lot of, uh, well, I'm mixed like a lot of people. I have Irish, I have Indian, you know, I have Black, you know, stuff. But uh, the spelling is of the last name is R-E-D-M-O-N-D. So www.edredmanmusic.com. And then uh, my uh, email, they can always give me my email. That's mwredman223 at gmail.com. So uh, through the website or through emailing me, uh, I have to put all these other things in place, like, you know, Twitter and Instagram and all that. (laughs) So I'm still trying to come up to speed on that. But I've been spending so much time and a lot of resources just producing music. But uh, I've made a lot of progress over the last seven years, and I'm looking forward to continuing to make progress and really uh, seeking to get the work to perform. I cut two songs on uh, Karen Briggs over the last couple of years, and uh, I look forward to actually doing an album on her. I told her it may take five years. I may have to do two recordings a year, but, you know, (laughs) five years times two equals ten. We'll get to the album eventually. So. Hopefully, I can get some funding and, uh, you know, expedite uh, what I'm trying to do. And uh, like I said, I'm very glad that Mitch Clickman and the uh, Symphonic Jazz Orchestra played uh, played some of the music recently, which gave it great exposure and stuff. And at the Carpenter Center, you know, on campus, Cal State Long Beach, that was done May 7th, 2023. So having a current performance of some of the music, I think gives it credibility in terms of it's still valid. Matter of fact, I think it's even more valid now than when he wrote it myself. So mm-hmm. see how it goes, you know. Well, I wanted to uh, ask one final question. So I did visit edredmondmusic.com uh, and I noticed that uh, once upon a time, Transitions in Black uh, was described as being Gershwin-esque. Uh, people who listen, who have listened to my show for a long time know that I've really gone on a journey when, <laughs> when it comes to Gershwin. I used to think that he should be completely thrown away, you know, really stealing Black cultural aesthetics. These days, I'm more in a spirit of uh, appreciating his appreciation of Black musical aesthetics. But even so, there are so many people, as we saw in that review, that will listen to music, orchestral music, classical music, hear Blackness, and immediately think of Gershwin. What do you think uh, the approaches uh, should be in not uh, becoming the oppressor, not you know marginalizing other composers, but helping people understand that not only is the music of Gershwin rooted in blackness, but much, if not all of American music, classical and otherwise, how do you engage that larger conversation? Well, again, that's been our struggle since we've hit the shores is to try to be looked at with equality. You know, when we came to these shores, but we weren't considered human, actually we considered shallow property, three fifths of a person. And uh, it's almost like when I talk about transition black, they did three out of the four movements. And I'm very grateful and appreciative for them doing the three out of the four. Okay. But uh, I believe that, you know, which is why I got the Budapest Corner to to record and videotape all four. Same thing with, uh, uh, and, and the title is actually transition in black. I mean, there was a misspelling on that recently when uh, Mitch Clickman did it, and he called it transitions to black, which, uh, you know, that, that could apply as well. But my dad named it transition in black without the S, hmm. even though, like I said, it's four movements, Africa, slavery, civil war, and the transition. And, uh, you know, we just, like I said, have to stay positive. That's the whole thing to me is, you know, it gets so frustrating, so challenging. Sometimes you just want to throw up your hands and holler, 
<laughs> and, uh, you know, my mother-in-law had a, had a saying, you know, stick with it till you get it, don't quit it. And I had a stepfather who said, rest if we must, but don't quit. So when I get to that point, I take a rest, but I'm always, you know, come right back to it because this thing needs to be heard, needs to be done, needs to be shared, needs to be realized and come to fruition. So that's, uh, that's my goal. That's my, my objective. And I'm, I've contacted a lot of the organizations around who are, you know, in existence and, you know, they've said no, but hopefully over time, you know, they'll, uh, you know, I'll win them over. And you know, like I said, if not, I have to take it totally international. I've already done that with Budapest School and Orchestra. So I'll just continue to do that. A lot of the uh, orchestras around the world, I think, will be happy to uh, engage this because they have a history where a lot of blacks have always had to go overseas and, you know, perform, you know, opera, you know, uh, a lot of musical things because they seem to have a greater appreciation for music than even here in the United States. But uh, as the world turns, as they say, you know, with the BRICS situation happening, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on politically that uh, speaks to America's decline. I think that has a lot to do with, again, the lack of appreciation that they've had for Black folks and other minorities who are right here, who have been a part of building uh, this country, the, the infrastructure, but have not been equal in terms of participating in the benefits of, this, of the prosperity of this country. So. That one's called The Transition, another excerpt from Transition in Black by the late Ed Redman. Huge thanks to Michael for reaching out to me and for doing the work of sharing and spreading more of our Black history in Western classical music. All right, I got a really quick triloquy this week. I wanted to <laughs> tap into this drama with Jamie Foxx before I call it a day. So first things first, before you know we even consider anything of what's happened, I don't know if y'all know what's been going on or not, but before we even get there... Jamie Foxx is one of the most talented people in showbiz right now. I think enough people know his name, but we have to remember that this man plays piano brilliantly. He's a beautiful singer. He has given it up on the silver screen many times. I mean, Django is in my top 10. You know, again, none of this is related to what I'm going to talk about, but you know, just just noting that this is a a, a very artistic man, someone who who uh, I think more of our students should as aspire to be more like. Not being pigeonholed in one genre or even on one instrument, but being someone of multi talents. Anyway, so long story short, Jimmy Fox posted a message to social media um, a, a few days ago that said, in essence, if they kill Jesus, what do you think they'll do to you? Okay, this is something I grew up saying, something that many people I know used as a way basically of saying if a perfect human being had to deal with naysayers and haters, you definitely are going to have to deal with the same thing. But this was taken as an anti-Semitic slur and social media does what social media does in response. Now, I hear the complaint. Trust me, I, I hear the complaint. I think I understand the nuance of a phrase like that more now than I could have understood it back when I was coming up and, and hearing that phrase around me. My issue is that this was barely even an honest mistake. It's just a part of Black culture that just so happens to be something that can very easily, easily and very, very understandably be mistaken for something that it's not. A lot of people you know, say that I've entered my statesman era <laughs> due to my Buddhism, but I don't think it's beyond anyone's ability to start taking a step back and having dialogue when we encounter things that make us feel away or or that we find offensive. Every time someone 
missteps, intentionally or otherwise. The exercise is to demean the person and to push them outside of the circle of acceptability. Sometimes I just wonder what the goal is when we talk about canceling people. Is it to you know ruin them financially, to have them uh, living on the streets, for them to die? I mean, what what are we what are we working toward when we when we do that and participate in that? So what if we did the opposite? What if we could force ourselves to understand what we think we're opposed to, or rather the people who we think we're opposed to, and just find ways to build bridges and to cultivate understanding? We have a very, very turbulent presidential cycle coming up next year uh, with one front runner going to jail. You know, we're going to have a president uh, elected in jail. <laughs> the other candidate seems to you know, uh, be the person to vote for just to not vote for the other person is going to be a mess. I'm actually going to talk about a presidential candidate next week, so I won't get too far into that. Um, But at the end of the day, I'm just beginning to see the world differently. I'm beginning to focus my thoughts on ways of engaging people on class unity and class solidarity in a way that just breaks down some of the nonsense that's keeping us from moving forward altogether. I want to shout out my friend T. They said that not even Beyonce (laughs) will be spared in the revolution if we really talk about class solidarity. So, you know, us brokies, we got to stick together and take the time to understand each other's personal, you know, cultural context. I'll just speak very plainly here in closing. Black and Jewish people, we got to cut the shit and understand that we have created some incredible things together, working in solidarity in decades past. And we can do that now. Can we give each other the benefit of the doubt and serve each other instead of trying to dig the trench deeper all the damn time? The solidarity, that we could have, oh my gosh, maybe we would even see reparations and all of us would be free, you know, (laughs) us, us, you know, us black folks and otherwise would benefit from something like that. But I'm just going to let it lie there. Love y'all. Thank you for listening. Talk to you again next week.